Boundary Objects podcast. We are Kerry Jones and Amy Barnes and we are at the University of Leicester at the moment in lovely sunny Leicester though we can't actually see any sunny at at the moment because we're in a room with no windows. This is our first podcast um, so please bear with us while we get to grips with what we're actually doing. We've started this podcast um, as an activity of the network we've recently helped to set up, which is called Boundary Objects, the network for early career researchers working with museums and collections. And our goal is for this podcast to look at some of the issues perhaps facing early career researchers and uh, investigate some of the research that's currently being done by early career researchers in the field of museums and collections. So, Kerry, our theme today is museum learning. Mm-hmm. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yes, I can. Um, well, museums are probably best known for their contribution to learning and how they help people of all ages um, learn about a range of different subjects. I mean, the number of subjects is too vast to go in here, but we can probably, most of us, think about some kind of learning experience we've had in a museum and what that has meant for us. And so the idea for today was just to perhaps think about um, some of the research which has been going on in universities by early career researchers which look specifically at museums and learning, what that means for museums um, in practice. Well, to kick us off, uh, we are joined by Dr Ellie Kirk. Hello. Um, who uh, has kindly agreed to be our first victim, I mean, inter- <laughs> interviewee. Um, so Ellie is currently a research associate in the School of Law at the University of Leicester, um, but she did her PhD in the School of Museum Studies, the title of which is Crystal Teeth and Skeleton Eggs, Snapshots of Young Children's Experiences in a Natural History Museum. And hopefully, Ellie, you're going to... Um, talk a little bit about that research and uh, yeah could you tell us how you came to do your PhD research in the first place? Yeah so I started off my career as a museum educator in science museums. I worked for a few years at Think Tank which is an interactive science museum in Birmingham and went on to be the education manager at the Thackeray Museum in Leeds which is a medical museum and I started to think that while I really enjoyed museum education, I wasn't able to really answer my own questions about it. And also, as a museum educator, what can end up happening is that you're focusing just on the visitors in the activities that you're running. So maybe classroom sessions with school children or you know, workshops with families or, thing, or lectures that you're giving to interested members of the public. And you don't really get to actually see what's going on for people in the main part of their visit, which is what they do as they walk around the galleries. So I wanted to ask those questions about what's it like for people actually in the museum. And I focused my study on young children, so on children who are four and five years of age, because I thought that was quite interesting that they can't 
use a lot of the standard visitor research techniques. They can't um, answer questionnaires because they can't yet read. So I thought I'd have to find a technique that would work for carrying out research with these young children. And what I wanted to do was really find out what it was like from their perspective. So rather than going to the teachers or parents who were visiting with them and saying, what was it like for the children, I wanted to actually go to the children themselves. That's quite rare, isn't it, to actually go to the child themselves. And as you say, it's normally through another person, isn't it, the facilitator or guardian or... I think often the assumption is that the child can tell you whether or not they liked something, but that actually the you know more important questions can be answered by adults. Mm. And my response to that is, you know, how do you know unless you actually try asking the kids some interesting stuff? So I wanted to really open things up, and you know, maybe the children wouldn't be able to tell me very much, but maybe what they told me would be things that I didn't expect. Mm. I think that's also where my research differs from evaluation. So obviously a lot of museum educators are used to the idea of evaluating their services. What they want to do is say, is this thing that I've designed working? Right. So you, you have this idea of what you want to do and you test out, is it doing what I want it to do? Whereas for me, the idea of research is much more open. So it's kind of working with a particular group of people and just seeing what happens and really being open to the idea that they could tell you things that you didn't expect. So you had some quite interesting methods that you employed in your research. Can you tell us a bit about that, your photography and things? Yeah. Um, When I started off, I had this idea that I would use all sorts of different fun methods for working with children in museums, that I would get them drawing stuff and showing me around and maybe taking pictures and all these things. Um, there's a field called uh, childhood studies which uses a lot of these different methods and they have been used in museums as well. Um, My research was carried out at the Oxford University Museum of Natural History um, with family groups coming to the museum so I just recruited them as they walked into the museum. They didn't know they were going to take part and I found that in the circumstances that I was working in there that I set up for my research, actually asking children to sit down and draw or to show me around just didn't work. They weren't settled into it. They, they didn't really know why, why I was asking them to do that. Whereas photography, I found, if I gave the child a camera and just asked them to take pictures of their visit and then to show, talk about the pictures at the end, it just worked amazingly well. So... To start with, I was like, oh, wow, what am I going to do? This one method's working way better than the others. And then I thought, well, it's easy. I just drop the others. So I focused purely on the children's photographs. 32 children took between them 1,600 photographs, um, all of which I plotted onto a map of the museum, which took quite a long time, and all of which I identified what they did. I was going to say, did you manage to to actually identify what they took photos of? I have to say, some of them were really easy, so that's another picture of the giant T-Rex. That was quite easy. There were quite a few of the giant T-Rex, so that was all right. Um, Some of them, it was like a white blurry thing against a blue background, and I'd be like, I have no idea what of the, you know, hundreds of thousands of objects in museum this is, and I'd take it to the guy who worked on the front desk, and he'd be like, yeah, that's a bone in that drawer over there. Oh, wow, so he could Yeah, the staff were really, really useful. So the kids took pictures um, and then at the end of their visits they came and found me. I was sitting at a table in the gallery with my laptop. We plugged the camera into the laptop, looked at the pictures and just as you're doing with me now, (laughs) I interviewed a conversation with them about the pictures Mm. that they'd taken. So what were some of your, the outcomes or the 
or your findings from, from that research? Um, Is there anything particularly that surprised you? My favourite finding, which I'm sure you know about, but mm. I'll, I'll say it for the benefit of anyone who doesn't know me and has never heard me talk about my research, mm. is that the children were really obsessed with giant spiky teeth. Um, so I had, I think it was 8% of the photographs were specifically of like giant teeth, mm. basically. Um, and almost all of the children took photographs of animals with giant teeth. And so this wasn't just predators. They weren't, they weren't particularly into, like, they thought the fox and the cheetah were okay, but there was this really different way that they were taking photographs of these really big predators, like the crocodile and the really big dinosaurs, the really big predatory dinosaurs. And the kids were, like, basically really obsessed with the idea that these things could eat them. Mm. So I thought that was really interesting because a lot of the time when people look at children in natural history museums, they're looking for examples of learning. So if they heard a child go, wow, look at those teeth, they'd say, you know, tick box, this child is talking about feeding behaviour. You're like, okay, it's a little bit more specific about that because they're not just talking about feeding behaviour, they're talking about something that will treat them as food. Mm. (laughs) And they're getting really excited by it. And in a way also they were quite empowered by it because Mm. they were being brave in the face of these giant monsters, really. Yeah, so, you know, they were kind of saying, I'm not scared, or in the... I also carried out observations of families in the museum, and I actually saw quite a lot of little children who were genuinely scared, who were crying when they saw these things, who were refusing to go near them. So these animals were having this really, really powerful impact on these little kids in the museum. The weird experience that I had, though, was I actually had that experience of the fear of mm. these animals myself. So I'd been, I'd done all my data gathering with all the 32 children in the museum. You know, I'd been to the museum three or four times. Then I was back at the museum doing observations. And there's this really big fibreglass T-Rex head, full-size, full-colour T-Rex head, <laughs> which used to be at floor level. So it was kind of about the height of a five-year-old kid. And they, they moved it onto the base of the T-Rex skeleton. So it was about a metre higher. And I came round the corner, and I knew it was there, but I came round the corner, and it was really unexpected. And I suddenly had this moment where, like, I was gripped by fear, uh-huh. and my heart was, like, pounding in my chest. And I looked back at it, and it was still, like, making me feel really mm. fearful. And so I walked away from it. Mm. And it took me about half an hour to calm down. So I can see how these animals, like, mm. there's something really instinctive, mm. like the re- response you might have to a spider, mm. you know, that actually it kind of really gets you at a kind of very subconscious mm. level you know it's completely irrational exactly. but nevertheless exactly yeah, yeah. but for a three-year-old or a yeah, two-year-old no, you know there's there's nothing irrational no. about that this is something that's big enough to eat you and it makes mm. perfect sense to be scared of it mm. and then for the old you know for four or five-year-old children who've heard a lot about these dinosaurs and you know that that's part of children's culture to be interested mm. in dinosaurs then they just get quite excited by seeing these things and you know it's obviously affecting them emotionally but also it's really exciting for them to see this thing that they've heard about and mm. so yeah that was that was kind of my favorite finding mm. so what do you think are the practical applications for your research what what would you like to see practitioners in uh, perhaps natural history museums mm. and other types of museums perhaps doing or changing the way they display objects or uh, sort of facilitate children's yeah. engagement with them In a way, that's a really hard question for me to answer because, as I said earlier, 
I didn't treat this as evaluation. So I wasn't testing the effectiveness of the museum. I wasn't looking for what worked. I was just looking for what happens Mm. when the children visit. And also, you know, I had one case study museum, so it's quite hard to extrapolate. Mm. On the other hand, I think there are definite messages that come out. The first message is it is worthwhile Mm. finding out what children think about things. They can tell you stuff about their visits that you don't know. So, for example, one little boy spent the whole of his visit, he was a five-year-old boy, he spent the whole of his visit really close to his dad. They had, like, this really adorable kind of ideal visit where the dad was really kind of facilitating his learning and they were looking at stuff together and talking about stuff together. Um, And then when we were looking at the pictures at the end and the dad was, you know, the boy was talking about stuff and the dad was kind of backing it up and then there was this one picture of, like, these beans, these red beans in a seed pod... And the dad was like, what's that? And he didn't... And the, the boy had taken this picture without his dad knowing. And his dad was really, really surprised. And if you'd asked the dad, he would have said, yeah, I, knew, I know everything my son did in that museum. We did it all together. Mm. But the boy had mm. kind of... There was actually parts of that experience that the boy had had by himself mm. that his dad wasn't party to. Mm. And he'd seen these things. He didn't know what they were. And he interpreted them as being eggs. So he was kind of making sense of things on his own. Mm. So... If you go to children, you'll find out stuff that you didn't know they knew or Mm. that they were interested in. Um, Secondly, um, there's this kind of idea within museum education that little kids need to be physically doing stuff to be interested Mm. and that maybe glass cases are quite a barrier to that age group. Now, in Oxford, they have these amazing handling collections, so I was actually able to look at, you know, what's more appealing, the handling collections or the cases... And I found the children were very interested in the handling collections. But interestingly, they weren't necessarily touching them. Mm. And I saw this in the observations as well, that children would touch some stuff, but often they would just look at stuff. Mm. So actually what seemed to be relevant about the handling collections was almost that they could get really close to them. But also, most of the pictures that the children took, about 60% of the pictures, were of things in cases. Was it 60? Maybe it was 80% of the pictures they took and 60% of the things they talked about. But anyway, most stuff mm. was in cases. Mm. And they were noticing stuff and they were interested in it. Mm. You know, Actually, if the stuff that is in a case is interesting for children, then mm. they're going to be interested in it if it's in a case. Mm. It's fine. They can see through glass. And actually moving around cases and through them and between them, you know, going backwards and forwards, is physically active. Mm. Well, that's brilliant. Thanks, Ellie. Where, where can people find out more about you and your research? Okay, um, I have a profile on academia.edu. I have a website which is elliekirk.com. Ellie is spelled E L E K I R K for Kirk.com. Um, I am on Twitter. Mm. I'm, I'm all over the place, really. <laughs> <laughs> and I've linked, the, there's links to my thesis on Leicester um, Research Archive, which is where all our theses get deposited electronically so you can download it from mm. there as well which I think is lra.le.ac.uk yeah and if you search, search for your name should be able to yeah if you search Leicester Research it. Archive you'll mm. in a, a large popular search engine that's <laughs> brilliant thank you Ellie um, just as a final uh, point really you you are a member of Boundary Objects Mm -hmm. as an early career researcher in uh, uh, working with museums and collections. Um, What has been, what would be your top tip for early career researchers? Is there anything you've come across that's really, really useful or maybe it's just a frame of mind? 
approaching that sort of post-PhD yeah. world? I think probably the main thing is just to keep working at it and don't expect stuff to happen mm-hmm. straight away. But don't kind of despair and give up because you've just got to keep making those contacts, keep talking to people and keep making sure that people know what it mm. is that you do and are interested in mm. you. You know, I, I'm not working in museum studies mm. at the moment. I'm working on a project to do with children in the law, which is really interesting and which I'm loving, but I'm still on the lookout for stuff that's to do with museums and I'm still mm. talking to those people and going to those conferences. Mm. And I think you've just got to kind of stick at it, really. Mm. And I think also it's a case of not assuming people will find your research. You have to put your research absolutely. out there. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Which is something I, I'm very bad at doing. So <laughs> thank you very much for coming and talking My to pleasure. us on thank the podcast. Hopefully that will get lots more people interested in your research and finding out more. <laughs> um, offer me a job. <laughs> yes, maybe somebody will offer you a wonderful position and I'm sure you'd be very pleased to hear from them. <laughs> maybe a museum that would like you to do a similar sort of project Absolutely. with them. Absolutely, wouldn't that be lovely? Yeah, somewhere international <laughs> yeah. and warm and sunny. Okay, well, thank you very much, Ellie. Next, we're going to turn to Kerry, who, um, as well as being a founding member of Boundary Objects, is a research associate for the Research Centre for Museums and Galleries at the University of Leicester and has been for over 10 years or so. 13 years. 13 years. Precise, yep. Blimey. And (laughs) you finished your PhD about three years ago now, I think. Yeah, 2011, 2012. Which was entitled An Illusion That Makes the Past Seem Real, The Potential of Living History for Developing the Historical Consciousness of Young People. And similarly to to Ellie's that can be found on the Leicester Research Mm -hmm. Archive as well. So you were looking at, in your research, not sort of quite small children like like Ellie was, you were looking at school groups, I think, predominantly, weren't you? Teenagers. Teenagers. So can you tell us a little bit about the background to your research and perhaps how you came to it? You know, your day job is doing research, so... What, what what possessed you to do a PhD as well? Possessed me, I know. Well, it was actually Eileen Hooper-Greenhill's fault. She encouraged me. She said, you know, to work in academia, it'd be really valuable to have a PhD, which, of course, on reflection, was brilliant advice, and I'm glad I took it. So she suggested that it could be something that I could do whilst working, continuing to work for the research centre. So um, the hilarity was that I did a distance learning PhD, although I was actually based in the School of Museum Studies the entire time. So I never, I never felt it at a distance, and I was able to contribute to the PhD community very well. So that Your office is brilliant. in the opposite corner of the building from the PhD room, so maybe that Well, helps. yeah, that was the distance, yeah. I had, I had to walk a few metres to get to you and, and say hello, but that was about it. So, yeah, so my PhD journey was quite interesting because I started off looking at a quite negative issue because mm. my issue was that I read a lot, I think this was early 2003-04, about how kids were rubbish at history in um, in school, how they didn't know anything. Um, they were terrible because they didn't know any dates, they didn't know any historical figures, they got all their war world wars wrong. There was just all this negative um, stuff in the media constantly about how children didn't know anything. Um, about the past and I really wanted to look at how museums could help support children and young people to actually find out about the past and in different ways to school because as we know at the time 
there was a lot of calls to return to back to rote learning, to learning of dates, that the sort of more progressive ways of learning history, at looking at looking at themes and big movements across time were not helping children learn the facts. So, yeah, there was a quite a negative reason for looking at this and seeing if, if museums were a more positive way of doing that. And then halfway through my research, I found about this theory of historical consciousness, which is a way of thinking about time in that we are people who are positioned in the present, but we have a sense of a past and future. And what that means for how we think about the past is important because we're always looking at it from um, a present-day perspective, so we're always framing it by what we know now. And that, of course, creates a kind of framework or bias or whatever you want to call it around how we look at the past. Um, and because I was at the time really getting into postmodernist ideas about history, which most historians hate, but that's another issue, um, which was saying how, you know, the past is a social construction, there is no real past, that kind of thing. So it all seemed to work in my head together that this, this notion of historical consciousness where we're always looking at the past from a particular perspective um, really fitted into that. And that really helped me understand um, some of the issues around why children struggle to learn about the past because they are so present day orientated they don't have a real sense of time in the same way that adults do and so they have really idiosyncratic um, approaches for example a lot of children will see the past as a negative place Mm. because it doesn't have all the material comforts that they have now so they'll automatically I mean I remember talking to some some young boys and they were all saying oh well the past was rubbish I didn't have playstations or electricity or televisions they just couldn't comprehend how people could cope without these (laughs) These technological <laughs> things that they had, you know, they, they just couldn't conceive of it. So that's one issue that I felt museums are really good at. You know, they can help, you know, children and young people who, who even don't even conceive of people as in the past as human. They, they think they're a completely different species or mm-hmm. kind of people to us. You know, they, they don't even make the connection that they were like they're like us but in the past if you see what I mean so museums by you know they're having objects and collections and and things that belong to people really help to sort of embed that in their minds that oh yeah they're people and they have feelings like us and and they think about things in a similar way that we do they might not have had the same things Mm. it's kind of getting them to think beyond things and thinking more about the people who who own those things Mm. And you did um, quite a lot of, you observed school groups with costume interpreters and things yeah. like that, didn't you? So yeah. what, what, what were those, what particular findings did you have that sort of came out of those kind of observations? What, what worked and perhaps what didn't work quite so well? What, and, yeah. and what might have sort of perhaps challenged the received wisdom about that type of presentation mm. in the museum environment? Yeah. Well, I focused on costume interpretation because, again, I was trying to look at this hum- very human aspect and whether having an actual person pretending to be someone from the past would help to embed this idea that people in the past are human like us. And as I said just then, they might not have had the same things as us, but they were the same kind of people. Of course, different cultural values and things, but there we go, that's another issue. Um, so I focused on that and I looked at two examples at the Museum of London... Which was, a ma- which was a single man doing a monologue about being a black death survivor. The black death decimated the population in the Middle Ages. Again, I should say, sorry, forgetting that I actually focus on the Middle Ages as well because that's a very difficult period of history for young people to understand. They really struggle with how different it was and often just make very simplistic 
decisions about what it was like. So trying to convey that complexity of the Middle Ages was another reason why I chose that theme, because the Museum of London and the Tower of London, which is my second case study, are both really trying to portray the Middle Ages in a different way from uh, how most of our culture portrays it. So instead of the sort of very negative, it was a terrible time of death and destruction and, and war dark. and disease, <laughs> dark, ages, dark ages, which of course it was. But on another level, they were also trading. Mm. They had very multicultural societies that they mm. were dealing with. So some of the issues that we have today were very similar back then. Do you think, sorry to interrupt you, Kerry, um, do you right. think like you're talking about how children kind of, sort of see the middle ages in this very simplistic mm. way but i mean it's true of adults, adults as well, well. Isn't it? yeah, and i think I mean, a lot of the time when we talk about the kind of this sort of deficit model of what children can or can't do actually that's mm. true of people of of isn't us. it yeah. Yeah. the problem is is that the research hasn't been done with adults to find that out as well okay it's very much focused on the school children and this how what how we teach do. history yeah, yeah. yeah so yeah of course mm. i think if we went into the adult population and asked similar mm. questions we probably would get but I think there's that view. kind of popular image of sort of the medieval peasant probably rolling around mm. in... Um, oh, you only have Blackadder. And, yeah, it's very sort of Blackadder, filthy, yeah. Um, you only have to read the Daily Mail where, you know, if anything is bad, it's called medieval. So all yeah. the stuff around ISIS at the moment mm. is, is they're setting up a medieval state. They're returning back to the Middle Ages, mm. which I think is a bit... Difficult. Only using Twitter, of course. Yeah, of course. You know, you know they're, they're still making it seem like they're taking society backwards, yeah. which... And that's yeah, the that's really the that's the uh, kind of that's the sort of the keystone, I suppose, for the way people think about society in the yeah, past. Yeah, whereas the, the Middle Ages, Ages were very yeah. progressive. You know, yeah. they were developing themselves as well. You know, the, the the early Middle Ages is very different to later Middle Ages. So, it, but it's treated like a society that didn't move. Everyone was. You know, there was no social mobility whatsoever, which there was. Mm. Everyone mean, was oppressed. Everyone was oppressed. Everyone ate cabbage and smelled bad. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you could, you could just trot out so many lived lazy cliches. Yeah, lived in mud, ate mud. Ate mud. No, that's... That's, yeah, that's me was... marrying a married man, isn't it? <laughs> that's, that's sorry, it's coming as a cultural reference. <laughs> yeah, there's some very, very UK cultural references. Yeah, probably people in their 30s will get. Google made marrying and you marry men and, and you'll have yes. a fun yeah. time. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> getting back to the, the findings, yeah, I found that um, costume interpretation was very varied. I mean, um, the Museum of London um, allowed the, the children a much more sort of complex view of the Middle Ages because they engaged with someone who was pretending to be a middle-aged person, a middle, middle <laughs> person from the Middle Ages, sorry. Um, whereas at the Tower of London, the sessions I saw, which were in the middle of being cha- redeveloped, um, I should say that to support the Tower of London in their approach, um, used a third-person interpretation where the person is dressed as a medieval person and takes on a persona but does not act as though they come from the past. So it's it's a method that is used by educators who think that keep, by keeping a distance, you, the child can then ask more questions, which is true because, you know, if you're, if you're acting as a, a medieval person, there are some limitations as to what you can talk about. But the young people actually really disengaged with this approach. They expected, if they met someone dressed in medieval costume, for them to pretend to be from the past. Mm -hmm. And they got incredibly confused when that didn't happen. So that was less effective than than the, um, the Museum of London approach. I mean, but for both for both young people, the the essence of being in the museum and seeing objects from the Middle Ages as well that really supported their learning. It wasn't just the costume interpretation; it was the whole experience at the museum. 
And, you know, researchers often talk about that holistic experience. And this is why it's so hard as a researcher to isolate particular experience. So, you know, you end up talking about the whole experience and and how that helps to shape someone's learning and, and how it builds pictures in their minds. And that's what the young people did. They used the medieval character, the objects, and the way in which the museum interpreted the Middle Ages to build pictures in the head of how they imagined the Middle Ages. And these pictures were much more complex than previously. So what what do you think, what, what sort of practical application then, perhaps, would your research have, do you think? Or, or where do you see it going next, maybe? Well, in terms of my actual research, I think it, because it was so experimental um, or exploratory in so small numbers, I didn't really draw any massive conclusions from it. As Ellie says, I was looking at more what was happening rather than thinking about what can we learn from it. Um, I mean, the massive finding that I found was that the first-person interpretation where the person pretended to be someone from the Middle Ages was more effective with the mm. children I researched. And I must say that the young people I worked with all um, attended either very small or private schools. It was incredibly difficult to get schools from um, mainstream mm. schools. Mm. They didn't want to be involved in the research at all, which was really frustrating. So I ended up working with young people who were incredibly bright, um, very privileged children. You know, their their parents took them to museums all the time. They were, you know, they were very good at they were cultural consumers. So they understood how museums work. They knew how to use them. And I think that also they were very they were very confident about what they didn't like and what they did like. And I think if I'd worked perhaps with more mainstream schools, I perhaps would have had some less confident children and it would have been interesting to see their approach. The staff, for example, at the Tower of London were talking to me about how difficult it was for them to get teenagers engaged in these sessions because they're so... They feel a lot about peer pressure and there's a lot of pressure to be cool and not get engaged and not show any interest. And unfortunately, I did see this with one school. There was one boys' school who I worked with. Unfortunately, didn't want to... I, they let me observe them, but they didn't let me do a follow-up, and um, I was really gutted because some of the students there were completely disengaged, and it would have been really interesting to um, explore that further. Do you think that's why they didn't let, wouldn't yeah. let you do the follow-up? I think so. Yeah. I think they were perhaps embarrassed about what the, the young people would have said, but that, for me, is the most important thing, you know, and I think mm-hmm. it's about trying to understand why teenagers particularly disengage as opposed to what what would engage them and I think that would have been an interesting finding. And that's actually where you can start if if you if you do some research about sort of children or you know any visitors in museums and everything's just hunky dory and rosy mm. there's there's nothing you can say about that really no. is there what you need is the contrast of you know where it does work and where it doesn't work. You need a range of views in yeah. order to because I, I think and this is what sometimes frustrates me is that, you know, sometimes people get really hung up on the negative examples and forget yeah. about the positive. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then other times there's too much positivity and there's not enough about, you know, where it doesn't quite work. Or yeah. if, you, if you read some reports, <laughs> then you'd think that all the museums were kind of cutting edge, amazing, yeah. you know. Yeah, It's yeah. trying to get that balance and, you know, what's most effective. And I also found that, I mean, this is probably should have been obvious from the beginning, but the age of the young person really, really um, mattered as well because, I mean, I, one of the groups I worked with was a group of A-level students and they were, even though they did show some deficit views of the past, like saying, oh, people in the Middle Ages were stupid, they were also getting to the point where they could 
critique their own view and they were saying, but why do we think this? It's odd, isn't it? You know, why why do we think they're they're stupid? You know, they were just like us. They had emotions, they had feelings, etc. So the way young people you can see a real progression as well at the age at the ages which i think is really something interesting for for museums to look at as well mm-hmm. i think can i just pick up on the thing you said yeah. a little while ago about um working with schools i think this is a real issue in carrying out research about museum education is actually working with schools in museums is really hard and the reason mm. that my research was about families in museums was because I tried working with schools I had one school where they didn't get any parental consent forms back but mm. the teacher let me work pilot my methods anyway another school where they didn't get any consent forms back and the teachers said no we, you can't work with them and at that point I gave up mm, and yeah. switched to families mm. and you know there's so the problem is these sort of multiple gatekeepers so to mm. get to the children who you're actually inter- interested in you've got to go through the museum staff who don't want to release any information about mm. what schools are coming in then you've got yeah. to go through the teachers and then you've got to go through the parents mm. and it's just so many hurdles mm. that actually you know this really massive audience it's only really the people who've got these amazing contacts and these amazing relationships who mm. can actually do that research. Mm. And people coming up trying to do research, unless mm. they themselves are working in a museum, mm. I think, you know, really struggle. I mean, the only the only successful research I've done with schools is through those History 2 massive projects with government, so mm-hmm. with the Department for Culture, Media yeah. and Sport and the now defunct um, Renaissance in the Regions programme in museums. Um, because then we had the lever of public funding yeah. to say, mm-hmm. come on, museums, get your schools to answer these questionnaires. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, as a, research, a sole researcher on your own, you don't have, you don't really have any power or, or anything to persuade, well, apart from your own, your own persuasive where, techniques, really. You know, if we're coming back to sort of advice for people, like advice for any stage researcher mm-hmm. is actually to build up those relationships with the museum so that mm-hmm. they trust you enough mm. to kind of be quite an open gatekeeper mm. and then you know you've only got the parents the, the teachers and parents to go mm. through at that stage and hopefully the, the support of the museums will help you but you know if you're just coming to this cold yeah it's it's hard to get anywhere really trying to work with schools a question for both of you really just to start drawing things to a mm. close how did the museums because um, you both did case studies in uh, particular institutions how did they receive your research um, my, well, Museum of London and Tower of London were really interesting. Really interested because what I did was every time I did a case study, I'd write it. I'd write it up as a mini report and give it to them. Mm. So they had um, from the beginning my findings. I gave it to them, and I found that really helped really well mm. because then they would respond to that and give me more mm. sort of research findings. I mean, especially at the Tower of London, it was really. Um, interesting because as I say the sessions I was doing there were being redeveloped and were actually being phased out and it kind of supported their the reasons why they had mm-hmm. phased them out because they just weren't working as 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 usefully as a first person interpretation approach would have which they have they have taken on I was really disappointed at the Tower of London because I intended to do a second lot of research looking at 
their new sessions and compare them and it, it kind of fell through because no schools replied going back to the issues of mm. working with schools but the, the museums were really helpful all the time and I, mm. and I mean I gave a copy of my PhD to the person at the Tower of London and he said he wouldn't read it but he's got it so <laughs> <laughs> I don't you know they theses are so massive I don't blame them for not wanting to read them really <laughs> you, want, you want one with pictures in yeah. and then at least people can look yeah. at the pictures <laughs> yeah I, I similarly you know I had a really positive response from the museum um, I mean as I said my my research didn't attempt to make any recommendations but um, I think I I gave a a list of kind of rough findings about halfway through to the museum which I know they discussed amongst the staff and then I sent them the thesis and that was really well received so I think you know for me that's really made a kind of positive relationship with Mm. the museum I think it's important for the researcher to be friendly and not to take the music yeah. for granted. You know, there yes. is goodwill involved in having exactly. somebody come and do research. You, yeah, yeah, in you a are. way, aren't you? Mm. Yeah, mm. and I think also, you know, if you're going to, if there's going to be the possibility that you could critique the museum, mm. then you need to really make sure that you're doing that in a friendly mm. and positive way. Build and, that relationship. Yeah, and that that's yeah. not kind of. Mm sort of souring that relationship mm. so that if you do need to critique them mm. that's not taken badly mm. and you also don't want to burn your bridges with them absolutely entirely especially if it's a museum that you love and i know that your favorite museum in all the world is yeah, yeah <laughs> it's true the natural history <laughs> museum in oxford yeah well it, that's because it's the best <laughs> <laughs> i'm sure yeah i'm sure sure people might have other uh, perspectives <laughs> Uh, they're wrong (laughs) (laughs) categorically (laughs) anyway well thanks both for that that's a really interesting discussion and I'm sure lots of people will get something from that Uh, oh actually before we move on actually I should say Kerry where can people find out about your research and get in touch with you well they can get in touch with me at the School of Museum Studies my profile is on the School of Museum Studies website where you can also access all our RCMG publications for free and um, they're all online if you want to have a look at those and my email um shall i give my email well i can find it on the website you, or it's on the website you're also on twitter aren't you i'm on twitter yeah kerry which is about c-e-r-i at 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 leicester excellent um well thanks again uh so just to uh draw draw things uh to a conclusion I hope that you found that really interesting. We're going to aim to do these work and family commitments uh, permitting perhaps once a fortnight, at least once a month. Wow, yeah. Yeah, so we're yeah. going <laughs> to aim to do that. We'll, we'll do our best. If you would like to get in touch with us, tweet us at Boundary Objects, uh, big B, big O. I don't know whether that's um, important or not but just in case it is, so that's boundary objects, all one word. You can find us online at www.boundaryobjects.org. If you would uh, like to get involved with boundary objects, it is free to join. Uh, You just need to go to our website and complete the membership form. Um, And then once you have, I will get in touch and let you know about all the exciting things that are coming up this summer, including a virtual petrichuture style symposium that we'll be holding in is it june or july <laughs> i should have checked july july i think but yes there'll be more yeah. information coming about that on twitter and the blog shortly shortly okay so from me and kerry and from ellie as well goodbye bye, bye. <laughs> <laughs>